Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Modern Wisdom. My guest today is Michael Blevins, one of the big dogs behind Nonprofit. He is also part of the team who has trained some of Hollywood's biggest actors to get them into shape, including Jason Momoa, Henry Cavill, and the cast of 300. So if you were hoping for a conversation about what's the best exercise to get big biceps or how can I grow my calves, I'm afraid you might be a little bit disappointed because me and Michael talk about everything to do with the fitness industry except for fitness. So exactly how are modern gyms not contributing to our sense of well-being? How is fitness training in some of its current manifestations potentially really damaging to people's both mental and physical health? Uh, we get into metaphysics. We talk about philosophy. It's a <laughs> it was not what I expected, but something that I wholly enjoyed. If you are feeling like going deep today and having some very symbolic thoughts about the world around us, then you're in luck. In other news, this episode of the podcast is brought to you by The Protein Works. The Protein Works, brand new sponsor for Modern Wisdom, have given me my own shop front on their website so you can see everything that I use from them. That includes my favorite at the moment, which is their super greens, keeping my micronutrients coming in at a time where it's difficult to get to the shops. Also, just no one eats enough vegetables. Even vegetarians, vegans, you don't eat enough vegetables. You know you don't. So top those up, top up those micronutrients by getting super greens. I've used it literally for two, three years, and I continue to use it every single day. Head to theproteinworks.com slash modernwisdom to see everything that I use and enter modern35 at checkout for 35% off. You cannot say better than that theproteinworks.com slash modernwisdom, modern35, for 35% off. But for now, please welcome a conversation not about fitness with Michael Blevins. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. Michael Blevins in the building. How are you doing, man? I'm good, man. Thanks for having me, Chris. I appreciate it. Really happy to have you on. We've got one of our mutual friends out with you at the moment, right? We do. Elodie. Yeah, Elasaurus. <laughs> All the way <laughs> yeah. from Newcastle to... Where are you? Where are you based? I'm in Salt Lake City, Utah. Cool. Yeah. Sweet, man. Yeah, which is a strange place to visit, I guess, if you were in Europe and you're thinking about coming to the States, it's not generally the destination that you're thinking of. <laughs> it's usually East Coast, West Coast. The middle area admittedly is not that interesting, but Salt Lake seems to be kind of a sweet spot. Yeah, like it, yeah, it just seems to be, I don't know what it is about it. It's, it's pretty here. It's high desert, you know, high altitude. They're skiing. If you're into that, there's a lot of outdoors. You're three minutes away from like red rock desert. So it's pretty good. Yeah, it's good, man. Elodie's Elodie's a little bit of a wanderluster, isn't she? So uh, I'm not surprised that she's ended up on your on your doorstep. So, yeah. how would you describe your approach to fitness? Ooh, um, I tend to run away from it, but I have to kind of asterisk that I I run away from the fitness industry. Fitness, I think, is really important because it's kind of our 
last attachment to what it is to be human, right? Like before we become all so technologically advanced that we have robots throwing food down our throat and all entertainment is LED screen and all, all senses are sensed, you know, through some other machine. Um, I think it's, it's kind of the expression of being in your body, your mind. It's kind of the combination of maybe, I don't you know how weird you want to get, but it's, it's kind of like a spiritual experience when you um, express it appropriately. And I think my approach to fitness is providing that experience for people, providing like the idea that this is an all encompassing philosophy that influences other parts of your life. Isn't it interesting that a lot of people use video games, social media, et cetera, et cetera, as a escape from reality in quotation marks. <laughs> and now you're offering people an escape to reality with fitness. That's a really good way to put it. Um, I would say, and I would, I would, I would kind of bookmark that for a really deep conversation about what it is to actually sense something. We are here. This is the deep conversation, Michael. Let's fall down the rabbit hole, my friend. All right. So there's something to this experience and how I frame this for people because people are very, um, I don't know how to put it because I don't want to, uh, people's initial belief is that what I see, what I hear, what I feel is reality, right? But in reality, that's not, that's not it at all. So what I sense is um, an interpretation of certain signals, wavelengths, patterns, particles that my ba brain translates for something that I can make sense of. So the, the color is green, but that's just a wavelength spectrum. In reality, what is that? Like, does that actually exist? Or are we already in um, a, a sort of virtual reality? And by putting on virtual reality through our reality, we're just devolving into one level of abstraction. So how I first like to think about it, and this is a nightmare situation for people. This is like, this is claustrophobia inducing. And I like to say, you know, imagine that you, yourself, your body with all your senses were, were locked into a 12 by 12 by 12 by 12 box. And it was completely dark. There is no light, but the outside world exists around it. How long do you think it would take you before you start trying to interpret what's going on around? Like you hear a car pass. So the, the echoes and the ricochets of sound, you start to echolocate and eventually, actually very quickly, your body through an act of synesthesia would start echolocating and you would start getting visual perception of what's outside of your black box. Mm -hmm. And this is what happens with people that learn how to echolocate after being blinded or something like that. Uh, they can actually navigate a three-dimensional world based off of sound and ricochets and noises because they've taught their brain to reinterpret their own reality. So it becomes kind of a sonar thing. And every human has a capacity to do this. In the same sense, if you um, are uh, missing something, whatever, taste, hearing, the, the senses take over and you'll you'll make a map of the world. Like our our, our reality is whatever the map we make of the world, but the map is not the territory. Mm. So the best way I like to put this is like, actually that, that, that black room, that is reality. You are already that your brain is in a blacked out container and all it's doing is interpreting the world around it. 
And you, sometimes um, you get that wrong. Have you looked at David White's work? I have not. Right. So you're describing what David White has arrived at. So anyone that wants to find out a little bit more about this stuff, just search David White on uh, Making Sense by Sam Harris. It is Ooh. episode 184, which came out earlier this uh, earlier this year. Oh, uh, is this the author of A Case Against Reality? Yes. Yeah, okay. So I am familiar with this work. Don't you? Yeah. So, you know, what uh, what he's saying is is a real serious manifestation of what you're talking about. The world as we see it, could be completely different and he yes. thinks it is likely to be really different but because we have to survive we've managed mm-hmm. to interpret it in a way that allows us to survive so i i i, I get that i like I, I like that approach i think it's interesting uh, yeah and, and is it useful it's, it's always that's like the question that's the yeah. that's what i was about to bring it back to so we go okay we've got fitness we've got this mm-hmm. this um bringing back to reality what is reality all this stuff but at the end of the day what does it matter if what we see is a true representation of what is out there when we don't have any other way than the way that we do have to see that. So I totally agree. The utility of it for me and through fitness specifically comes when I say all of these are just representations of reality, but how good you are at interpreting that has to do with your sensitivity, right? So the more sensitive I am um, with faulty tools admittedly like my eyesight is faulty my memory is faulty my taste my touch my hearing you know i I literally ran past somebody the other day and i thought they called me an asshole and i was like what did you say and they're like oh i said i'm sorry and i was like why did you default to that um that's i've thought a lot about that i was like (laughs) what about people calling you an asshole as you're running past well because i think in in my model of the world I've built a model where the majority of people I run into are not worth knowing and I don't give them the benefit of the doubt. I'm actually on the negative side of it. Mm. And it's something I've had to like really work after to really correct that thinking because I want to become more sensitive to other people. So I've started this drill because I realized, you know, when driving in traffic and somebody cuts you off, you're like, ah, flip that person off, give them whatever ruins. You kind of like, oh, people are so stupid. And in reality, that's not true. People are not stupid. Human beings are highly intelligent. They just sometimes lack attention towards my personal well-being, which makes me think derogatory things about that person. (laughs) But if I remap the situation that they didn't cut me off because they're against me, that goes towards um, uh, whatever razor it is. I can't remember. But the the thought is... Do not attribute to malice that which can be attributed to stupidity. Exactly. Um, So if I if I go back to that model and I go, okay, first attribute a different thing. They cut me off because they're in a hurry, right? They're late for something. What if that lateness was, you know, their daughter was in the hospital, and this is like a drill that a lot of people do. And then now suddenly they cut me off, and now I want to get out of the way and help that person out. And so it remodels the world. So I want to become more sensitive to those interactions. And fitness is just a way to become more sensitive to the world around you because you become more sensitive to your output input, right? What the environment I'm in, my heart is racing, the weight is heavy, I don't want to do the activity, my brain is working against me. All of these conversations and inputs and outputs, I have to start to manage. And that's something that we don't practice. So we lose our sensitivity with the, you know, the model of the world that we're viewing. And I think the more you get into fitness, the more sensitive you are to reality. 
Why is fitness the answer to that? Why can't I do it through something else? What's so special about fitness? Um, mostly because it's the glasses that I see through. So I'm applying my bias through most mm, people. It could be it, if I was speaking to an artist, they might say, yes. well, it's obviously art that's the thing yes. to do this. Person, I'm going to so steal man my own argument here, uh, or yeah. your argument. I would say that the visceral feelings that you get, especially when you do high output fitness, Mm-hmm. Um, but then I, again, I can go on the other side of that and say Pilates, yoga, especially yin yoga, mm-hmm. slow things that essentially is just mindful stretching. There's some sure. very, very present states that you get into there, but there's no hiding being at 180 BPM heart rate, right? There is, there's right. nowhere to hide. There's nowhere to hide when you're picking up anything over 70% of your max on a deadlift. Right. There's, you know that it's happening. It brings you into the present. And uh, yeah. I did a, a podcast with, Paul Bloom, a psychologist oh, and philosopher yeah, yeah. from University of Yale, beast, absolute beast. And his new yeah. book is talking about why people like pain. So how mm. uh, pain and meditation, basically, how what is the similarity between BDSM and meditation? What do they have in common? And there's this yeah. quote from a really famous dominatrix that said, nothing captures attention like a whip. And the point is the reason that people do these extreme sporting events, base jumping, that flying squirrel thing. I don't know what that is. Um, Like the reason that they do all of that stuff is because you, the line between you and death is so fine. And, and so at the forefront of your experience, you can do nothing but think, put all of you into that particular experience. And I wonder how much of these, you know, as you talk in these sort of almost allegorical, uh, symbolic ways about your fitness, I wonder how much of that experience is you bringing yourself into the present, making it a meditative experience because there's nowhere to hide. Well, a lot of it, yes, is presence. And I find, you know, maybe the the easiest, most tangible way to feel that is through fitness. But you're right, there are other ways. Like art is a great example uh, but I think art is the outcome of the others. Like if I'm present and I practice and um, I feel hardship and pain and I translate that into an experience and I want other people to relate that experience, I create art. And a lot of the times where there's effort and time comes art. And so uh, music runs that way. If you're uh, know any musicians like how they create music is just a huge mystery but a lot of it has to do with how their experience has informed them and a lot of that is painful experience um, the tough thing is like what is the difference between you know dealing with pain learning to develop pain tolerance and masochism like it's a fine line and a, a lot of the time especially I, I think in CrossFit people cross that line and then they get lost because they become addicted to the feelings that um, tolerating pain come with, the release of endorphins, this like, you know, community-based sweat angeling is what I would call it. And it's just, (laughs) you know, they're addicted to the outcome and they forget to get sensitive with the actual output and that end. One thing there is it's using a sledgehammer where a small stone hammer might might do right you yeah. know there's very it, again what did i say you can't hide mm-hmm. away from 180 bpm heart rate there no. is no there's nowhere to go you know it's happening you feel it you know this place and it's the same place every time it's like getting drunk but yeah. you going and drilling 
uh, for you guys, it'd be in pounds. So like hundred pounds, hundred pound deadlifts, tempo deadlifts. Like yeah. that's not taking you to a place. You're forcing your attention into mm. the movement. You're drilling the movement. You know, for people that are listening that aren't, aren't sort of fitnessy, think about anything that you have to do a lot. You know, like even changing a baby, you know, or spending mm-hmm. time with a baby, rocking a baby to sleep. You can choose to do it with or without presence, with or without mm-hmm. mindfulness. You can be in that situation fully or you can be yeah. away. And I think people can take that extreme, that top, top end, real pushing, pushing mm-hmm. and that is an easy way. That's the, that's the whip, right? That's nothing catches yeah, attention yeah. like a whip. That is the whip. Yeah. And I, I'll, I'll grade this on kind of a curve because there is, there's stuff that demands attention at the very top of intensity. And you kind of, you decide, you described uh, squirrel suit flying and some base jumping. And there was this, uh, uh, there's a documentary called uh, Valley Uprising. I don't know if you've seen it. It's on, it's on Netflix. It's a, it's one of the best documentaries I've seen. And it's basically about the culture growth in Yosemite national park when climbing came onto the scene. So it starts with all the great climbers and how they develop these roots. And it kind of gets to, um, a guy interviews, a uh, Dean Potter and he's a, he's dead now. He died from, I believe a base jumping accident, something related to that. Uh, but he was an extreme free solo climber. One of the best. And people kind of saw where he was headed with it. And so people attribute that, oh, he is just, um, he's just a, what do you call it? An adrenaline junkie. That, that's, that's generally what gets said um, about some of these people is that they're like just seeking a hit, like they're junkies, right? But how he described it was how I describe anything that requires presence, which he's trying to touch a void. So he was specifically talking about uh, tight wire, ro- like tightrope walking. Mm-hmm. And he'll walk, you know, freely up thousands of feet where any mistake is certain death, like any slip. And even like certain things, certain uh, inputs that aren't up to you, the wind direction can shift. Anything could switch you off. And that danger allows him to be totally present and appreciative of his life. It's actually the opposite of what most people attribute to uh, adrenaline junkies, which is, um, I am risking this on this knife edge because actually it allows me to feel life at this intensity that I can't get doing anything else. But I back that out into, you know, let's call that the sacred space where everything is so like, I don't know if you've ever been to any kind of ceremonial um, happenings, but they create a space and they clean it and they clear it and everything is precise. Ritualistic. Um, Ritual, right. Like, you know, they smudge and they call in directions and they do all these, you know, very ancient and cultural uh, traditions. And the idea is that they're creating a container that they can create sacredness inside a profane world. There's a really good book called uh, The Sacred and the Profane that kind of describes how almost all all human cultures have this idea of sacred and profane. And um, the interesting part about fitness is that we've kind of lost that. That's, that's why I'm, I kind of go against the industry so much because we've created nothing sacred inside this practice that I think is really sacred, which is intuitively teaching you about your own psychology, your own physicality, your own capability, and eventually your own spirituality. Um, but our gyms have become, for lack of a better term, like 
masturbation pots. Like they're just people going to the gym and looking at themselves and either being dis like shaming themselves or admiring themselves in a narcissistic way. And fitness in the industry is purely aesthetic. Like we talk about functionality, right? Like CrossFitters are talking about, oh, it's form and function and it's functional because I lift a heavy weight quickly and look how athletic I am. But in reality, if you've ever dealt with CrossFit athletes, 99% of them are dieting before a competition so that they get more camera time. Like it is still the same aesthetic problem. There's very few, um, maybe at the top where they put aesthetics aside for performance, which is the expression that we're talking about. Um, but on this sacred profane thing, once I come down to the bottom of the curve where I think that it's not sacred, it's not profane, that's actually still sacred, which is minute practice. It's very boring. So, um, where I think the most development comes in is actually some of the monotony, like finding, you know, sitting and thinking becomes the most painful or sitting and not thinking rather becomes one of the most painful experiences somebody could have because their brain is all over the place. So uh, in, in the fitness world that we're trying to create, we had to kind of start over and, and we constantly start over. We deconstruct what works and then we recreate what we think is better. And so we're constantly breaking this space down and rebuilding it into something that can transform people. And one of the ways, one of the simplest ideas that allowed that to happen is we got rid of the name for our physical space. So there is no name. Like we have a brand that we sell stuff through because we have to file taxes hmm. called nonprofit. But the space is just called the space. And one of the reasons to do that is that way when people have powerful experiences here in a container that we've made sacred, they can't talk about it, right? It, it, it's not, uh, you know, hashtag blessed and hashtag got in my, you know, whatever. I'm going to flex, show my abs and then say something inspirational like Gandhi, you know, like I don't it's it's become. I guess perverse in a way. And what we wanted to do is rewrite that. So this space is sacred. People can have experiences and they can talk about the experiences, but they can't talk about the spot that really illuminated that by not having a name. Instead, it's a green building warehouse on night South across from a strip club. And people go, what are you talking about? And so no one can find their way here unless they really seek it out. And I think that was the biggest difference that we made is that we don't advertise. We don't try to push what we're doing because if people want to find the thing, they'll, they'll do some really hard work, which means that takes away, you know, me having to convince them that fitness is an important thing or convince them that hard work is important. What would you say to someone that said all that that is, is another marketing ploy that's triggering off different signals. So some mm. some gyms are super out there. They've got the the guys with the tans and the white teeth, mm. and and then other gyms are we're functional and we've got the fittest athletes, or we've got the biggest athletes, or we've mm. got the this. And someone could say, well, that's just another. That's just Michael being another step ahead of the curve there and thinking, well, if I make anti-marketing my marketing, then the marketing will work yeah. even better because it sets you apart. To, to some point that is true. Um, there's a guerrilla aspect to this, but I would probably reply like, well, then we would probably have more than seven clients. But if it was like a marketing scheme to get people into this place, but in reality, 
there's seven people that are basically allowed on a daily basis to come in and train here. Other days we might allow a few other guests and whatnot to come train on days that we're training. Mm -hmm. But on transformational projects, when we take somebody from A to B, we limit it. Um, it's very private here. And I mean, yeah, I would say if the anti-marketing was working, um, we would actually be making money off of it, but no, we don't. Instead, to support this entire space, we have to create uh, material such as books and things to read and all of these things in order to support the work that we're doing that then informs the other material that we're writing. It is a terrible business model. <laughs> <laughs> it's... We joke about it often. It's like we're really bad at business. Um, at business. Okay, so I'm, <laughs> I I walk into your space for some somehow I've got on the guest list. Someone's mm. got me, LED's got me in VIP or whatever it is, uh, <laughs> and I managed to. Uh, you're gonna be really disappointed if you think you're VIP if you come in here. You know what I mean, right? The doorman, yeah, yeah, hasn't, yeah. the doorman hasn't stopped me at the door before he started his shift at the strip club across the street. And um, I've 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 got in. What happens? What's it like? Tell me about the space. There's people listening who will know the the heritage that you guys have through Jim Jones and all that sort of stuff. Like what what you know what what happens? I walk in. What's it like? Uh, one of the things that we got right at Jim Jones was um, having an inside and an outside. In here, stuff happens. Out there, other stuff happens. And so that was the start of understanding a sacred space. Um, and some of the things that we messed up were obvious to us, but, you know, uh, we let too many people in. Um, but in reality, when people come in here and they're having this experience, um, it starts with a lot of conversations. And this, this is why, sorry, I mean, not to use these terms because it's in vogue, but it's not, what we do is not scalable. Like, there's never going to be a day where I'm like, cool, what we did worked really well because we know it works really well. Let's Therefore, roll this let's just... out across five sites. Yeah, exactly. It's like, hey, let's like duplicate me as quadruple me. Mm -hmm. Let's just fill up the space. We've got 5000 square feet. Let's open up another one down the street, which is like Orange Theories or CrossFit gyms down the street. There's no formula for this. So when people come on in, it's really off putting at first because for a month, I am just asking questions. And that's all I do. I ask questions. I show them a couple things. I might have them move around a little bit to get a better idea. I ask them about their work life. We have conversations about their past, their history, their traumas, their injuries, all of these things. And after about a month, people start going like, hey, how much is this place? Because I haven't charged anything. So the first month, I actually do due diligence to see if I can actually make it work. The reason we're so successful is because I don't work with people that I don't think I can win with. Like we, we can both win. If it's not a win-win situation, I don't want anything to do with it. And it takes me about a month to assess that out, to understand their home life, to understand their background, to understand their motivation. And then we just start the process. Um, it, it becomes very one-on-one, -on -one, but sometimes incorporating groups when they need it. So the idea here that's different than most gyms is when you go into a gym like a CrossFit box, they have a program. It's the best program in the world, by the way. It's like this master elite weightlifter Navy SEAL wrote it. And um, he's been to the games 19 times in five years. And um, that program is supposed to be for everybody because it's the best in the world. It's a super secret squirrel program. And if you come to this gym, you get to do that with everybody that's a super secret squirrel. And 
you know, that's intelligent programming. Look, and it's written two years in advance. Like it's written like, you know, a doctorate. <laughs> it's like your whole, the next four years of your life are planned. You're back squatting in 2024 on a Tuesday at 85%. <laughs> and instead, when people come in, I look at them on the day and decide what they need to do. Now that, that sounds like it's a last minute approach. What we're doing is an intuitive approach to a structure that I've broken down. So when somebody comes in after about a month of analyzing, I go back and I work out in order to get to X on this date, they're going to need this kind of stimulus. It might be um, three endurance work, endurance sessions a week, two strength sessions, one body flow session, uh, two you know body work sessions where they're actually getting recovery work. I try to plan out everything and then dose it like okay, they're if they're dieting and Aaron is running their nutrition and cooking for them, then. I'm talking to her in order to slowly break down calorie restriction so they don't ever feel it or increase macros in a certain area so they can handle certain adaptations. And then on the day, I have kind of an idea of what needs to get done. You know, during a week, I need these three sessions. And if this day they walk in, and I look in their eyes and they didn't sleep well. Well, there goes the high intensity section, right? Like that's the last thing I want to do to somebody is beat them down so that it's harder to come back. Our model now, as opposed to what we were doing at Jim Jones, which was to literally just fuck people up like that. That's all we were doing was like really hard work. So people were shocked by all the work that we were doing and we became adapted to this heavy workload and we could tolerate it. So then we'd give it to other people. They would break down and we would just laugh like, ha, see, you're missing something in your fitness. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's what most trainers and coaches do when you come in to see them. They they want to make you hurt to show them how much you're missing of their knowledge or their expertise. So it's used, that pain, I think, often gets used in fitness as a proxy for secret or hard work. But I mean, like, I can write a workout for someone now. I'm not a programmer. I've not got my CrossFit level one. I can write a program for someone now that's impossible to do. And, For it's sure. hard, and it's hard work. That doesn't mean that I have some no. super secret squirrel knowledge, right? Right. So I, I, and all, out, all out minute on the Aerodyne every five minutes for an hour. Yeah. Like it's like, yeah, I can make anybody hurt. And that that's a tool. But in reality, and if you follow Paul Bloom and some like Daniel Kahneman and a lot of these people that are really delving into the psyche and behavioral patterns of people, we find that pain tolerance doesn't come from beat downs. It comes from so slow accumulated ability, right? Like I tolerated this much. I lived cool. It wasn't that bad. <laughs> and then I come back and I do a little bit more. You look at a, an elite endurance athlete, like somebody like, Re, like Rebecca uh, Rush is a perfect example. World champion mountain biker, won Leadville a couple times in a row. She's a Red Bull athlete. She's, she's known as the queen of pain. Like that is her fucking nickname. <laughs> That's badass. She doesn't go and beat herself down every day. She actually goes and enjoys herself in a natural environment on a bike, being physical in the way that she loves to express it. Mm -hmm. And then on the day, all this accumulated tolerance gets put towards one competition. And of course, she's going to slay everybody. She hasn't had to tap into the hurt locker every day in order to get amount of volume that's required for professional stuff. P perfect example of that. Elliot Kipchoge never never trains above 80 percent ever mm. fastest man right. on the planet fastest man yeah. on the planet over 26 miles never trains yes. above 80 percent because he's got it in the tank now i wonder how much of that how much of their particular physiology 
has that extra 20% in there, you know, like to, to raise that ceiling, it takes a, a super, a super physiology to have that in the tank. We were talking, I was talking to Steve Fawcett from CrossFit JSC the other day, and he was talking about how the best athletes will qualify for a local competition or whatever it is by only giving 80%, which means they can go back to training. And I was like, yes, yes but that's only if your 80% is good enough to be as good as everybody else's 100%. Or else you haven't Correct. qualified, right? No. So, and I, I think that's a really interesting point. Like, you know, how do we, how do people continue to improve, continue to get themselves better without, like you say, just force feeding themselves with this pain and, and, and using pain as a proxy for hard work? So this is where the boredom and monotony pays off. Like there's something structurally that changes in the brain with enough boredom. And this, like, um, if you've ever read a book called Endure, um, we Alfred had him Lan on the Alfred Lanson. Al Alex Hutchinson. Oh, Endurance by Alex Hutchinson. It, yes. He's, a, he's yeah. a monster. What a guy. Um, we had him on the podcast after we read his book, mostly because he wrote, he wrote about Mark and then never consulted Mark. So Mark has a thing. He's like, Hey, we're going to have a conversation. <laughs> um, and it went well because we, we agree on a lot of the same techniques and a, like a lot of the phenomena that's behind building great endurance has to do with the brain mm. and, and fitness in general. And this is where I said, like, there's something in there in his book and we've noticed it is that if it's not boring, it's not working for endurance, but you're, there's this ability and maybe I'll phrase this on a bigger spectrum for which we work because we work in general fitness and capacity, GPP. Mm -hmm. General physical preparedness means that we want to be capable in each of the designated energy systems as we know them. So we've redefined a lot of them, but as they go strength, maybe it's called power endurance for some people, maybe it's called for us it's capacity, maybe it's Metcon, whatever, it's like this 90 minute thing. Mm -hmm. And then there's endurance, and then there's ultra endurance and in between are fettered with really ridiculous terms like speed endurance, who the hell knows what that means. Mm -hmm. And then there's strength endurance was just another way it's to three, describe it's a three rep max. Call it a three rep max. <laughs> I wish it was that simple, <laughs> yeah. uh, but we, we basically bastardized our terminology, but we do address, okay, this is the systems. Mm -hmm. um, but we chart on top of that. One of the things that I think that we're most well known for is taking stuff like the physiology and mapping on um, a psychological map as well as a philosophical map on top of that, like overlays. If you imagine you had a bunch of those, I forgot what they call them, uh, where they have a projector and those clear screens or whatever, mm -hmm. and you can kind of lay them and they should all line up. And one of the ones that we've reached psychologically um, is that each, each thing takes a different temperament. So strength is on a very sympathetic fight flight that's the energy system it's atp it's creatine phosphate it's this immediate go-to the presence it's self-preservation like if you've ever lifted anything really heavy when it's getting shaky leg and you're starting to do like you know a little bit of palsy at the top just past the knee and you're trying to struggle to get that up hmm. your immediate feedback is let go because you could hurt yourself self-preservation is an immediate task for that so ultimately we find with most athletes that are in that channel they're very self-involved, actually. And not, not, as, not to say that as a pejorative. It just means that in order to get good at their sport, they have to be present inside their self. And their self has to be the existing thing that is most important. But to an extreme point, 
that uh, sympathetic state becomes narcissism, right? All importance. And you see it when, when somebody like pulls a super heavy deadlift and like, you know, he's thumping his chest. It's a, not an ego maniacal, but it's a very ego presence that that person is the most, he did it. He is the champion. Mm -hmm. And then on the opposite side, we have ultra endurance, which runs into the multi-day. And even you can see this after a couple hours, you'll see, you know, Kipchog or like any of these runners, they cross the finish line and they're in tears. They're breaking down. They lost their sense of self. Mm. And that's because we find endurance happens in a parasympathetic state, which is loss of self, loss of ego. If you've ever messed with psychedelics, it's ego death, which is a deep parasympathetic state. Or you could do breathing drills to get you there. Pranayama, breath of fire, all of these things reinforce a state where I have lost my sense of self. I've separated from my body and I've become one with the universe or whatever you want to describe it as. Mm. And so as we map these things, we understand that certain states are good for certain people at certain times. Not everybody needs to run an ultra endurance, but if your job is very uh, self-centered, uh, sympathetic, you know, maybe you work a, at a hedge fund where everything is immediate and your sense of accomplishment is very personal. Mm. Um, is your answer going to be CrossFit and, and powerlifting? Because you're just like multiplying the amount that you're in that state. And when you compound that with your commute to work or the fact that, hey, I got to beat my hedge fund at, you know, 6 a.m. to start before everybody else starts. So I wake up to an alarm at 4.30. I get in my car with caffeine, cortisol's running, sympathetic state is up. I'm in traffic. I'm swearing at people. I get to the office. I'm late. I do all this stuff. And then I'm like, oh, it's noon. I got to get my workout in. So I run down to a CrossFit gym. I blast an 11-minute Metcon, crush it, give everybody a high five, get back to the office, finish work, get back in traffic, go home. And then I wonder why I feel like I'm diseased because I can't sleep then. And you're like, you're just compounding this state. And in reality, like, hey, maybe we should, you know, maybe the, especially if you, if that's working for you, by all means, like mm -hmm. if you're, I don't know, a Jocko character and waking up at 4.30 and crushing the day is the answer mm -hmm. and you feel great, you feel fantastic about your life, there's nothing to change. But most people do not feel good about their life. Like most people want change and transformation. They want to become somebody who they envisioned, I right? I think the, um, the mapping of whatever you want to call it, the philosophical, psychological with the energy system, that's certainly something unique that I haven't really heard spoken about before. In James Clear's Atomic Habits, which I'm sure you'll be familiar with, he talks about, he spoke to um, one of the uh, Chinese weightlifting team coaches, legendary Chinese weightlifting team coach, and he said, what's the difference between the athletes who are the best and the ones who are the very best? And he said, it's the ones who can put up with boredom the most effectively. So it's that yes. people believe that these top-level athletes come into the gym and they're just getting after it. Matt Fraser, perfect example. Yeah. But almost everyone that's listening will know who he is, fittest man on the planet like three, four times in a row, probably the best CrossFit athlete to ever live. I'm also going to guess he probably ranks in your category of people who are happy to forego aesthetic for performance. Yes, he doesn't look 100%. like the sort of guy who is dieting down to um to make sure that he's like, got an extra ab or whatever before the crossfit yeah. games and um you know you look you look at him and you think yeah yeah he, he must be getting after it every day he's pumped to get into the gym like if you if your coach says hey man it's a recovery day you're just doing like five by ten minutes on a rower with a couple of minutes rest and some breathing exercise nasal nasal only breathing yeah. at 135 bpm you're like ain't nobody getting pumped up for that 
No one's, no. no one's getting pumped up for monostructural work at like a mid, not even getting leaner, <laughs> not even getting leaner, but in fact, probably somehow getting fatter as you do that. Yeah. So the inter- he is one of the examples that I'd point to uh, of somebody who, uh, and you'll see it because right before the games, he adds a couple pounds. Like he will gain some fat tissue. Well, I don't know if it's on purpose, but he'll what probably, it is, you'll probably need that during the weekend, right? It'll- for sure. Hyperprotective. Um, and, and that's what people don't realize about that, that state. The other thing is like, of course he like boredom. And that's what, uh, Alex Hutchinson talked about. is like, there's something that develops once you become bored with an activity, how you have to deal with the pain of it and the monotony of it. And that they, they studied, uh, motocross racers and endurance, uh, motorcyclists it, because if you're racing for long enough, man, you're, that's a monotony at a level that most people don't recognize because the stakes are still very high, but you have to figure out a way for your brain to not be not sympathetic. Regulate. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So I have to be very present in the moment, but also almost separate myself. This comes in bike racing too. Events are so long that eventually I have to separate myself from my pain and my anxiety about the future. And I just have to be in a present state and process, make sure I take care of myself. And then when the moment happens, when a break happens, I have to be on it. And now I'm sympathetic and I'm seeking, I'm hunting it down and I'm fighting. I love it. So these kind of things are really interesting to us because a lot of people think that man training so hardcore. And to be honest, we perpetuated that problem. Um, when we got involved, sorry, I want to interject there, Michael, for someone who doesn't know what you guys did in the past, what is a what is a two sentence summary of your training style since before, uh, before nonprofit? Um, we were responsible for a lot of the uh, bullshit that people know as movie fitness, <laughs> <laughs> and um, we did that for a very specific reason because it was a really good platform. So we worked with actors and actresses and stunt crew and crew of 10 uh, movies over the past 10 years, basically. Actually, I think it's 12 years now. So 300, 300 Rise of an Empire, Man from Uncle, Man from uh, Man of Steel, Justice League, Batman vs. Superman, Wonder Woman, Aquaman, uh, Aquaman and um, I can't remember the others, but there were some. Uh, they all blurred into the same mm-hmm. fucking movie. Um, and the reason why we first started doing it, well, Mark originally did the, the original 300 and I came in on, on Man of Steel and then the second 300 as his assistant. And it was because it was a good platform to show people that actually that this is not special, that this is available to everybody. Sometimes we won that conversation. Most of the time we didn't because ego gets in the way. So you take somebody through a transformation, they change, and they want to talk about how hard it was because they want um, – they want social uh, signaling, praise. yeah, social praise for their work that they've done. Everybody wants that. Everybody wants acknowledgement of the hard work that they've done. Um, but they make it harder for people to then do that themselves. Why? So the difference, uh, well, because if 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 you're like, hey man, how did you get into such good shape? You're strong. You're athletic. You're really lean. You're tan. How did you do it? And I'm like. Oh, it was actually really simple. I just like changed how I viewed food and I, um, I ate in a certain manner for a certain amount of time and, uh, I, I changed how I thought about training and I started to really be cured. Instead of being 
instead of being obsessed with what I wasn't, I started to be curious about what I was capable of. And I just did that for six months under the guidance of somebody to make sure I didn't hurt myself. And voila, here I am. That no one's going to, they're going to go, Oh, I guess it's just easy for you. Mm. But instead they're like, you know what? I crushed myself for 27 hours a day for training sessions. And I only ate kale and dust for six months. It was miserable. And look how good I look. And people, you th- wow, you work so hard. You think that creates a bar, a, like a seeming barrier to entry, like project a I- barrier to entry where people are like, oh, well, the, I'm, I'm incapable of achieving that. I therefore, it's probably pointless me even starting. I couldn't live on dust and kale. I think so. Yeah. But, and then they'll attribute it to like, well, he had the best trainer and the best personal chef and body work people. They look at all the haves mm. because people are really good at separating the have nots, uh, which is true. It is easier if you have a private chef. No one is going to argue that. Um, but like the this thing comes up too, like, oh, well, they're getting paid to train. It's like everybody has the same quit, don't quit conversation in their head when it comes to it is. It's an equalizer and it goes beyond economic status. When you start running all out, the conversation is the same. It doesn't matter if you're male, female, black, white, Mexican. Everybody has the same voice that goes, hey, shut this motherfucker down. This is uncomfortable. It doesn't, it's not like, hey, but you're rich and you're getting paid, so keep going. Yeah. In fact, that's probably the opposite. There, I don't what need I to do this me. shit. I don't need this. I've got I've exactly. got Gerard Butler's contracted in for two movies at five mil a pop or whatever it is. Like I don't need to fucking put up with this stuff. Done deal. Yeah. And and why would I? Like people already think that I'm great because everybody around me in my circle tells me how awesome I am. I get awards, you know, on the weekends and I travel and, you know, get blown by supermodels. Or, like whatever the thing is. Sounds like it's like life. that it does, but it's actually pretty miserable because you lack honesty. Man. You lack any kind of presence. I want to. I want to interject there because yeah, I, I, sure. had, I had Aubrey Marcus on, and um, he. First off, everyone that's listening will know what that episode was like, and if you haven't already heard it, I implore you to go back and listen. Number one hundred and seventeen, one of the best sixty minutes of conversation that I've ever put out, and um, he started talking about one of his fears for actors, and he said that because they're constantly playing a role. He was talking about how the persona is incapable of receiving love, capable of receiving praise, but incapable of receiving love because love is something it's speaking to you, speaking to who you are as a person, right? It's about, I see you, I see the values that you have. And love is something that requires honesty. When people are playing a persona, which is literally an actor's job, but everybody that's floating around to one degree or another, your ego is, uh, mediating that id right it's stopping the id mm. from coming out and being all visceral and just meaning that you run across the road and get hit by a car or whatever um and that that's everyone has this degree of persona and i think that mm. that's one of the reasons why you have actors who seemingly incredibly incredibly successful how could he be depressed how could he be this it's because they don't mm. they feel love for the characters people don't love gerard butler people mm. love king leonidas they don't love, do you know what I mean? It's only yeah, when you're able to transcend that and actually have, I, I suppose this is one good, good advert for the advent of social media is that now actors are able to flesh out that personality mm-hmm. a little bit and be more than just you know, the Maximus Dudius really? thing is. Yeah. yeah. 
Absolutely. I think I would take it one step farther and be like, I wouldn't worry about actors. Everybody has a persona. Like we are all just characters. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you've ever seen um, Auntie and Me, I think it's called, uh, with Jim Carrey when he was, uh, it's a documentary about Jim Carrey. Oh, yes. And and he doesn't doesn't switch off. He doesn't. And like, it is so (laughs) profound. And maybe I'll ruin a spoiler alert. That's fine. In the end, when he's talking about it and he goes, I realized in a moment that I had become Andy and people saw Andy in me. And I realized I didn't know who I was anymore because I didn't know who Jim Carrey was. Jim Carrey was just another mask that I needed to try to fit on and get used to again, which is terrifying. That That is ego depletion. That's a loss of self, a loss of identity. It's also in the extreme points known as schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of these practices that we do, we risk schizophrenia in order to establish an identity and that we talk about identity from this sense because we see it with athletes, actors too. Um, actors, it's a little bit more obvious, but let's say that you've been racing bikes since you were 19 and you're a professional bike racer. You've been in the Tour de France and you retire at 35. Who are you? Like you. You have just lost everything that you were appreciated for. We see it in the military all the time. You spend $10 million on an asset to learn the, you know, the deadly skills of being an SOF guy. And you go over there, you do, you know, democratic whatever, and you come back and nobody gives a shit. You need to work at Starbucks. Like you're one of the most expensive, educated people on the planet at killing people. We're doing whatever job is required and you come back and there is no use for your skills in society. And so you have a loss. There's no acceptance there. You need to figure out a persona. Um, And everybody goes through this. So it's not just actors, although actors are kind of the obvious one just because they're pretending to be somebody else. It's their profession, right? They are forced into this persona all the time. I want to, I want to sit in this point. We're supposed to be talking about fitness, but fuck it. This is more interesting. Um, (laughs) So I was, talk- I was talking to um Tucker Max. Do you know who Tucker Max is? Yeah, I do actually. Yeah, have you seen his new stuff? I have not. I read. Uh, I heard. I hope they serve beer, beer and hell. Okay, in so- my twenties, and then I followed Ryan Holiday's path of help marketing that thing. So I've been oh, yeah, really. Yeah. So he's this old fratire party boy that publicized all of his stuff, and I had him on. Had him on the show um a couple of weeks ago. And man, like he's, he's just gone complete. He's rebounded off the other side. He's completely internal. I've done so much self work, so much self inquiry, incredibly, incredibly self aware. Like one of the most self aware people that I've ever, ever seen. Um, if you want to find out a little bit more about him, he's got a newsletter, which is lessons I've learned with that he's tweeting every day and then at the end of the week he'll just send you a summary of all of the lessons he's learned and almost all of them are reflections on himself and this that and the other what he was talking about was um people now see him as this guy that created a literary genre right fratire he was this guy he was party guy fucking girls going around doing the thing getting drunk throwing up on people you know just doing the thing this is tucker max i put tucker max in the tucker max box this is Mm -hmm. who he is now and then he goes away and people still see him as that, right? People still see him as that. Yeah. He then comes back having done some work 
And people are like, no, no, we don't want that tokamax. I, in fact, before this podcast today, right, I went on and someone replied to one of his tweets. He did a lesson I've learned, real good one again. I can't remember what it was. It was, it was all right. Um, I can't remember what it was. And someone replied and said, man, I miss your old stuff. And he just replied and he said, want the old me, buy my old books. And the mm. point is we have these different epochs in our life, yeah. right? We have, this is who Michael was when he was doing Jim Jones. This is who mm. Michael is now. He's doing when he was doing nonprofit in the the uh, initial yep. stages. Now this is what he moves into now, and people don't like that. People really, really mm. get triggered as they watch people ascend and transcend and become something different from what they were. Because I think that growth mindset and the ability for people to no longer be what they were and be something else identifies in some people that are watching. Holy fuck. Like that person continues to move while I'm in inertia. Like I'm stagnating and this really hurts to watch someone pull away from me. So we talk about this in transformation process and there, there's, there's a lot to talk like to kind of unweave out of this process. Um, I, it starts with like generally when somebody wants to make a change and they come to us and like, Oh, I want to lose X amount of weight. And they mm -hmm. think that that's the thing. Mm -hmm. And my first question is how fat is your spouse? Right, like how <laughs> how fat? How what are your? How does that you know, how does that question go down? Um, usually, it's shocking, which is a good tool <laughs> to have. But also, to watch somebody squirm is also good. Like, how do you describe? Because I know already, like it's very rare that one person is in really good shape and the other person has just let themselves go. And there's a reason for that. But the reason I ask it is because if somebody starts to change and transform the person who's looking at them closely will see it's a reflection of their non-progression and they will try to bring them down. So you see this in office, right? Somebody starts dieting and in the lunchroom, it's fucking Karen's birthday. So there's like 12 cakes and they're like, it's Karen's birthday. It only happens once a year. Mm -hmm. It's like once in a lifetime, have a piece of cake. You're like, no, I'm good. I'm having a salad. And you're like, everybody will try to get that motherfucker to eat a piece of cake because it's a reflection of their non-compliance. Mm -hmm. and, the, and the closer that person is, the more sabotage they will cause. So when I tell people, how fat is your spouse? Or ask them, <laughs> and they tell me, oh, well, a little bit overweight. And I go, okay, realize that when I require 10 hours to sleep and you sleep in past them and I require all these things and you start to change, they're going to start making you brownies. They're going to be telling, hey, look how good you've done. Let's go out for a treat. You deserve a reward because they want to actually stop looking at themselves. And I think that happens because I think human beings are reflectors. We are mirrors. Like our mimetic beings, I think, as Paul Graham says. In fact, in Peter Thiel's job application, he asks people, what is the belief that you hold which disagrees with 99% of the people that you know? Yeah. <laughs> where are you breaking I, where are you breaking the programming? Yeah. Where are you deprogramming yourself? I and I maybe we'll get a little bit out there right now, but I've had you know, this has really helped shift my thinking. I am atheist and i don't think that's a choice i think i'm you know at best agnostic being in towards... being in utah and being an atheist must feel like a a, <laughs> a little bit of a, a tough place for it to be uh, true but i don't think there's I, I think it's just a natural inclination to how you look at the universe and i say atheistic because i don't believe in a personal creator i don't connect with anything like that but i do not deny creation as a process 
And when I look at human beings being here on Earth as a product of the sun's energy and the Earth's ability to nurture growth and life, I go, yeah, we were created and perhaps our only job is to be a reflection of the universe. So if I contend that the universe is making everything, which I don't think you can argue that, um, I think that the universe's art is our brain. So the universe want, you know, because it's a creation process, why not create something that can actually appreciate you? That is the ultimate creation, right? That that's your, that's your hope for having a son or a daughter. That's your hope for creating a business is that the appreciation is a reflection of your own creation. So I figure human beings are a reflector in the fact that if ever you're not looking up at the stars going, what the fuck, this is so awesome. <laughs> this is amazing. I'm so appreciative for my experience here. You're a broken tool. You're a, you're a hammer without a handle. And I think a lot of depressive states are a f- multifactorial but a big part of that is not being like not seeing the utility in being a creator yourself. Man, so Daniel Schmachtenberger, have you ever heard of him? I have not. Civilization Emerging. So he is coming on the podcast this week. I'll link you to some of his stuff. I'll link you to everything yeah. that I've, spoken, I've I've dropped on you over this. He has a talk which is about emergence and it is the hardest hitting 20 minutes that I've ever listened to in my life. It's okay. unbelievable. The synopsis of it is that we talk about um, entropy being the kind of the uh, ruthless force that just continues to pummel everything, right? That you have uh, increasing amounts of um, randomness occurring as you go along. It's also supposed to be the reason for why heat occurs and a bunch of other things. Sure, yeah. Um, But he talks about the fact that the uniqueness that we have is that we're a conscious agent who is not only a passenger on the ship, but mm. also a pilot able to affect the ship's direction. And like when you fully, fully internalize this conversation on emergence, which will be linked in the show notes below, you'll have to listen to it probably like three or four times to get it. At, le- sure. or at least I did. It's not a listen to it on two times speed thing. Like, right, right, right. Um, and when I fully internalized that, I was like, holy fucking shit. Like it's, <laughs> it's, it's right. It is correct. And you, you right with what you say as well. This connection to what is going on, this grander self, transcending who we are, all that sort of stuff. It sounds so esoteric, right? Mm -hmm. But there's something to it. There has to be something to it because of the way that it makes people feel. And I think, you know, through whatever your chosen mode, whether it be strong psychedelic drugs, whether it be um, looking up at the sky, the sky, whether it be sitting in silence in a quiet room in a float tank, whether it be getting your heart rate to 180 BPM, whether it be, you know, whatever it might be, singing on stage, performing the most intricate routine that you can in martial arts form or, you know, mm-hmm. pick pick your, like, what are we trying to do? What are all of those things, what have they all got in common? Uh, they definitely put you in a state. I, I, I connected and I kind of connected to myself because I went through obviously change um, and I, I think it's important to recognize what that is. Obviously, I don't, you probably read a lot of Joseph Campbell's stuff, The Ark of the Hero, The Hero with a Thousand Faces. And I think um, we, we forget that we're all kind of on that path at all times. And that if ever we're not on that path, we're risking demise. Like if we're not ever trying to change into the thing that we hope to become, then we're risking just annihilation of the spirit or whatever you want to call it. And a lot of people don't see this. They just go, oh, you know, I want, 
I want a new body or I want to be fit for once. And they don't realize that actually what they're, they're talking about is becoming a different person. Um, what Don, I mean, so, I mean, if you're familiar with psychedelics, you'll know what the hero's dose is. But a lot of people have a misconception of what the hero's dose is. They think it's because it's so scary that you have the courage to take it. And really what it is, is it's so terrifying, but the scary part is it will change you. So a hero is a hero, not because he has courage to go into it, because he has the courage to come back and change. Like he goes and finds the elixir and he brings it back a different person to help inform whoever or however you want to contextualize that. Mm. So that's how we, that's kind of how I map, you know, my own transformation. Mm -hmm. It's like mm -hmm. if ever I'm not willing to change, I'm not doing something right. But I, I think one constant that has really helped is like this map of the universe looking back. I'm a reflector. Yeah, yeah, gratitude journaling, all that shit. <laughs> but in reality, when I look at it, I'm just dumbfounded by how little energy we can actually put out. Like our output is so minuscule compared to our creator, our son. And I don't know if you've ever looked at it, maybe I'll send you a link to this. NASA has, um, if you get out there enough, you can actually hear the sun. The sun makes a noise and it's a rhythm. It almost sounds like a binaural beat. It just And every once in a while, twice a week about I'll sit down and listen to that because it reminds me how fucking pathetic I am. <laughs> and the reason why is because if I want to do a good job about reflecting my environment, it means I do what, what uh, created me, what, what gave me life, what gives me nourishment, which I look at as the sun. And so I do a workout for 15 minutes and I go, ah, I fall on the ground and sweat. And I'm like, oh, that's the hardest thing ever. Mm -hmm. I'm going to rest for like seven days mm -hmm. or whatever. Mm -hmm. The sun has been up there for billions of years, just whoa, 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 putting energy into all of this. And so whenever I feel like I'm, I'm tired, I always listen to that video and I get up and I go put energy into my space. Because really, if I create an environment, which is what this building is, and I put enough energy into it, other people will come in and they will feel that energy and they will grow, they will change. And then I just create change after change after change. And it helps me figure, again, how pathetic it is, but how I can be appreciative of the process that gave me me, is I can put energy and help people give them them, if that makes sense. I'm, it's kind I'm, of out there. No, no, not at all. One of the things that I've been thinking about a lot recently is um, – how we can kind of transcend our suffering, right? Like what, what we, we have things that happen to us, bad things will happen, the people that we love will die. Literally the only thing that we all know is that one day all of this will be gone. It's the subject of um, the poet Rilke, and I think it's Freud walking through a garden. It's a, a short essay called On Transience. Rilke looks like he's going to cry, and he turns to him and says, like, what, what's wrong? And he says, I, just, I can't believe the fact that one day all of this is going to be gone. Isn't it such a tragedy that all of this is going to be gone and that one day you'll be dead and I'll be dead and all of this will literally decay into... And he didn't know he'd death, but it's, you know, that's the, yes. long, the long, long, long story of that. And it is, you know, it is a, it is a tragedy to have that. Mm. But as we go through our life and as bad things happen to us, a good example for me that I've been reflecting on recently is I've been injured. So I've had two mm -hmm. bulging discs, L3 and S1, which has meant I haven't basically been able to do fitness. Who am I mm -hmm. without my fitness? That's a question I've asked myself. <laughs> you know, 18 months, 18 months of being the, the kid with the water wings on in the corner of the room, like doing 
another round of side plank and bird dog and mm-hmm. you know like core stiffening i went to go see dr Stu mcgill in canada flew all yeah. the way to canada to go and see him um, yeah, amazing. he's a beast um and you know i did i i did this stuff and I'm, I'm thinking fuck like this sucks this sucks this sucks and i wouldn't recommend it to anybody as a personal development mm. strategy like it it, it, sure. it it sucked dick but first thing it taught me was who am i without my fitness and the second thing that it taught me was reflecting on that means that i can now tell the people that i that listen to this podcast and the people mm. that i know look if something happens to you where you get something that you thought was so core to your being you know something i've done for 13 years that was yeah. i'm the fit guy i'm the guy that's in shape not only is my routine around that my personality is around that wrapped around that blah 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 like who am i without my fitness but now i can say to the people that are listening look like it will be okay it's going to be fine because your desire for growth and your desire for progression will naturally like a vacuum it will suck other stuff into it and then when you get whatever you've just lost back when you develop it and you now have conscious competence of that particular mm-hmm. thing, you're so much more appreciative of it. Like today, I went in class. Class was a, a million things that I'm not supposed to do from Dr. McGill. So I couldn't do any of them. So I had like mm-hmm. a polybar. I was doing like snatch pulls with a polybar in class. And this guy's like flinging 80 kilos around and blah, blah. And I'm like, fuck, like I'm doing it. Like I get to yeah. do fitness. This is fitness. Like I mm-hmm. know that it's like the the most nerfed, child version of fitness that anyone's ever seen but i got to do it and i was like fuck like imagine what it's going to be like when i can pick up 200 200 kilos again you know yeah and 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 that being able to transcend the suffering that you've had by telling other people by using the experience that you've had to then teach other people how they can expedite transcending that same suffering or an analogous Mm -hmm. suffering or whatever it might be is the ultimate middle finger to anything bad that's ever happened to you. Had an experience with depression, had an experience Mm -hmm. with a family member dying, had an experience where something that you cared about got taken away from you. If you take that learning, distill it down into something really valuable and then teach it to someone else so that it makes their life better, that is you just going, fuck you. Like you thought Mm -hmm. that you had me. Not only have you not got me, but you don't have this person either. That's, I mean, it falls in line with, I think, uh, Stuart McGill, uh, colored that the book, The Gift of Injury. And that's a lot of it is like this. Yeah, yeah, it could, it could be. And this, this comes back to the depression topic. It's really rare that you meet somebody that is very well off, um, financially and whatever, whatever we want to conclude that success is for that person and that they don't have symptoms of depression. In fact, Suicide is more rampant in um, those middle ranges of successful incomes, middle high range, than in any other demographic. And you have to wonder at what point, why does that happen? And, and a lot of it has to do with um, bad things. Again, you don't want to wish – this is my, my argument with Sam Harris on philosophy. The point is to reduce suffering. And I go, man, you'll really reduce people's ability to know themselves. And so although you don't wish it on anybody and some suffering, man, you really want you want to have compassion and empathy and stop it for that person. But really what you're stopping is their own development. I Suffering is going to happen. And if it doesn't, how good would it be? And again, this is like it comes back to my problem with the idea that the soul is infinite or that we are going to live forever and a happy ever and everything is happiness. Everything is just so good. Well, do you know what? Like. Five days of nothing but the best, everything makes you not appreciate the best of everything. So it becomes it becomes nothing. 
So if you have all good experiences all the time, you have no experiences all the time because you have nothing to compare that to. We need polarity in order to understand the universe. You need up and down, light and dark. You need all these concepts. This is this is philosophically sound where you won't appreciate anything unless you have its opposite. So it's tough to say, uh, you know, man, I, I do want to teach me. In fact, I, I think it's Peter Thiel. Like his quote is like, um, any idiot can learn from their own experiences. It takes a truly intelligent person to learn from others. Yeah. Uh, which is true, but also there's some visceral things that you just have to learn on your own. And I think being injured is one of those. I, uh, when I was bike racing back in the day, I fell in a time trial and I shattered my elbow, like 27 fragments. It was close to an amputation. If I tore one more ligament, they would have just amputated it. But they did this weird surgery to get it back. And I'm a fairly physical person. And their first thing was like, well, that's over with. <laughs> like, you're not going to do that anymore. And it was almost like, uh oh, like, <laughs> how, like, what? How do we even go about it? But the lessons are: a, you aren't what you do. Like, you, your activities are not you; they're just something that you process. And I think it's also true to recognize that you are not a noun; you are not a thing. Like, you are not. We say person, place, or thing. That's a noun. That's not true. That's that's a. That's to help grammar work correctly in sentence structure, but it is not true. You are not a thing. You don't just exist. Nothing is a thing. It's all process. All of this is just process. Everything is just moving all the time. And this is actually I might lead a segue into uh, how we got back into the fitness space because we obviously speak esoterically very easily. We go off on these wormholes in our podcast about different topics, cultural affairs, all of these things. And we have really denied the request to add anything to fitness until this year. Um, in fact, our, our symposium is called Fitness is Fucked. <laughs> so it gives you an idea. Of like are you how just, we, sorry to interject there. Are you only doing that in the UK or are you doing it in the US as well? Uh, we're doing, so we mostly just do the symposiums in the US. The one that we had planned for the UK, we actually just had to cancel because of the fucking Corona scare. Are you it's just, uh, I didn't know. That sucks. Yeah, it's, well, it's, it hurts on two parts because I know it's ridiculous. Um, but it hurts on another part is because I am now, because I canceled it, I feel like I added into the panic, even though it was just, it wasn't uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. possible for us. Right. Like it was just like, look, people aren't traveling to do this stuff. So if we can't fill out a seminar, we can't come there. Um, and it just doesn't look like it was moving. So we just postponed it. Hopefully after we'll come back because the UK, we have, quite a large audience in the uk shout out paul um, yeah paul's a good one he's largely responsible for that so he comes to our symposiums here that's how elodie got involved um she came out uh to a symposium last fall and um those symposiums although we call them fitness or fucked people realize really quickly that we're not talking about fitness um unless we're talking about the industry when you come to the symposium it's structured that the first day is dialogue and we don't have, this has changed in the past year, we do not have material to teach, uh, which is very terrifying for us at, far, at, at the very start. Because most people, they teach a seminar, hey, come learn these points that I've dictated that you should know. Mm -hmm. And what dawned on me last year was that I don't want to teach like that. I want to know what people want to know that we can do, and then we'll go down that. But to get to that point, we just have to ask questions because people don't know what they want to know. Mm -hmm. And so it starts for the first three hours. We're just bouncing questions off of people. 
You know, why are you here? What, what are you doing? What do you want to know? What's worth knowing? What's, what is it to understand something? We go down these really deep, concentrated things, and eventually we, we end up at a very similar place each time. But then people will understand our thinking when you come to subjects. So the next day when we're actually talking about fitness and how to progress it and, you know, how, how to set somebody up to learn about themselves, they have this, you know, 12-hour conversation to backbone it. It's a lot of context, now, right? Yeah, exactly. So as opposed to run at this heart rate for this long, that's yeah. just an abstraction. That's just an easy way for me to get out of responsibility of actually teaching somebody. But if I actually teach somebody, I'm teaching them to be sensitive and to pay attention to their personal organism, which is, what does it feel like right now? Can you talk to me during this effort? Like heart rate's a part of it. Is it above this? So what happens if you know, and this is a really cool experiment you can do with people. We're doing steady state stuff. So I want you to stay around 70% max heart rate. And then we're going to try to express efficiency in whatever modality you want to get good at running, biking, et cetera, whatever. Let's take biking. So, okay, you're spinning, you're at 140 for 45 minutes. Everything is fine. I come over, I chat with you. I take my half glass of whatever I'm drinking and I set it on the edge of a box next to you and it's halfway on the edge. So it looks like it's about to fall immediately that person's heart rate will escalate. Their response to the same stimulus will escalate because their brain has just taken on another task. It needs to stop that glass from falling. Mm. And so what we do is try to teach people in that space all of these things personally, right? If you're just running every day, that's fine. That works. You get pretty fit. But if you're running, thinking about work and all your other responsibilities, you're not actually trying to get efficient at something. So we teach people to clear their thought process that you create a sacred space in which they can become good at something. And then we enter in distractions. So it's like an advanced meditative process, right? We bring in distractions, come back to the breath, come back to the breathing, come back to the focus, think of nothing. If something comes up, that's okay. Acknowledge it, but don't worry about it. The glass is not in your control. Physics will take care of it. And if it breaks, your effort still needs to be done. So if something goes wrong, you need to keep doing, you need to keep going. You need an our you know, definition of endurance is you need to see something through to the end. The same thing is true with strength. Strength, and this is, uh, we recently came out with our strength manual. Um, and basically people ask for a long time, hey, will you write some programming? And I refuse to do it. <laughs> Mostly people Mark, just want to- the, Michael, for the love of God, can you just teach us some fitness for once, please? <laughs> yeah, yeah, just quit talking about physics and dumb shit. Yeah. Um, well, I thought about it and I thought, you know what I could do? Because what happens is I say, no, we don't teach fitness. I'm not going to write a program. What happens is people just go to the next shitty program, mm. right? And then they're like trying to take our concepts and apply them to some other thing. Mm which they don't know it well enough to be able to do that. I can do that. I can go do the small love program and, and understand our take on it and understand what I'm working and therefore the small love program is great. The hash squat program is great. All of these things work if you have a foundation of understanding what's trying to be accomplished. So my idea is like, oh, I'll bust out a program. I'll explain our methods and I'll be done with it six weeks. It'd be awesome. We'll just sell the shit out of it. And what happened is me and Keegan started working on it bouncing back and forth. And I realized we're fucking in way over our heads. So a six week project became an eight month project. And even then I was still not happy with it. I was sitting on it and then I kind of had some epiphanies and it clarified everything. It's because we redefine strength and this is what we do. And this is, we write things not because we want to teach people, but because we want to understand better ourselves. 
Like I write articles and ideas, not because I'm on a soapbox preaching what, hey, you should do what I do. It's really putting words to paper and articulating them help me understand them better. So every piece that I write, understand that I learned something by writing it that I didn't know before I started writing it. And this was no different, although my ego was keeping me from learning that lesson. It was like, oh, you already know everything about that. You can express strength perfectly. You can get people strong. And I didn't know how I did it until I redefined it. So we created the strength program. Yes, it's based off of just moving um, the lifts, the squat in whatever variation you want, a deadlift and a press of sorts. Uh, classic powerlifting, although we do recommend a horizontal as opposed to a, or a, a press overhead as opposed to a bench press, although both programs work. So there is like numbers and things that you should do. And it's a, you know, an eight week program and testing at both ends. So it is literally everything that we hate done in a way that we could appreciate it, <laughs> which is to start with a definition, which I think is incorrect in most physiological terms. Most people come to strength. They see somebody back squat, right? Heavyweight, fuck a thousand pounds. That guy's so strong. It's like, yeah, he is. But why is he strong? Is it because he's moving the weight? It's like, no, because movement is power. Like we refer to things that move as powerful. A wave, when it hits you in the face, is powerful because it's moving. A castle isn't strong or a fortress isn't strong because it's moving. It's strong because it's holding. So when we strength train, we're practicing holding the spine in a very specific position or a joint or whatever. In gymnastics, it might be the shoulder girdle or whatever, neutral, extended, arch spine. All of these things are an expression of the ability to contract and hold the position. And I think when we abstract and we use a barbell to get strong, we forget that we're actually trying to hold our spine in a specific position. And so we forget to express it correctly. And so we went back and kind of reiterated why we hold things, um, why isometric contraction is so important, why gymnastics is probably the greatest expression of strength. And I know that'll make a lot of people mad. They're like, oh, the back squat's the king of exercises, although has like 90% of it is not applicable to 99% of the sports. So the... <laughs> Just I'm going to get on a like I might boil thing and people will eviscerate me for my uh, degrading the squat. But in reality, it can teach you some things abstractly. But lifting weight is a level removed from contracting and holding the body. And this is the hardest thing to teach. It's like the dog is not the dog, right? The, if I write the word dog down, it's not a dog itself. And that's how we've created strength. We've said a 400 pound back squat is strong. But that's a arbitrary abstraction for the expression of holding. And so instead, what we try to do is remember that if I need to push against something, it means I'm not developed correctly because I can't control the contraction in my own body. Once I can contract to 100% or whatever your marker is for the expression of strength, it means I have control over my body. I have the will to make it contract in the way and hold against the things that I want to hold against. Whether that's in an MMA fight and somebody puts me up against a cage and I need to hold my position or it's holding my spine in a deadlift. Whatever, whatever the thing is, whole strength is a foundation for the expression of power. And so power comes only after I can hold my position and my stabilization in order to express power. But people go about it differently. I went about it by expressing power first because I'm fairly good at snatching and clean and jerking and that felt better for my ego. 
but I'll always use a, a lose a clean on the squat because I'm not strong. My spine is unable to hold the position that's necessary to stand it up. So in learning this ourselves, we were able to now apply it to other people. Our strength training looks wildly different than it did 10 years ago. And that's not because the stuff that we're doing before was wrong. We were just insensitive to what needed to be focused on. Man, it's um, it's interesting to hear you talk about training plans that are more prescriptive. It's it's like you know, we're, everyone that's listening is hearing you in the throes of, I want to elucidate about these ideas and the philosophy that is behind this, but I also appreciate that at some point, like the tip of the spear got to enter the the gym and in the gym you need to know what you need to do it's all well and good walking into the gym and saying that i'm transcending the ego and i'm going to be present in the breath but like you need to know you need to know what what weight to put on the barbell or what percentage you're lifting today right um i wonder how challenging you've found it and i don't i haven't um spent much of time listening to mark talk but i imagine it must be similar for him as well like when um when you guys get into one of your symposiums or you get this and, and you have to actually go, right, now is the time for people to get a X piece of machinery out or X piece of like kit out. There has to come a point where you go, right, enough with the like erudite, verbose stuff, time for me to yes. lift, lift some things. Do you almost, do you almost resent that a little bit or do you still kind of have a, a, a love for the, for the, that side of, of the movement? No, I, I think it's, philosophically applied like is how I look at it it's like yeah we do all this hard thinking work but eventually thinking gets in the way of moving and what I really want is to move I want to feel things um, there's this really great quote of like there's thinking believing uh, I can't remember the other one but then there's feeling and feeling is the in fact I wrote it down actually so this is this is a Buckmaster Fuller thing, and it, it like it really is useful in the fact that I don't know if I can find it. Maybe I can't find it. Oh, here it is. Um, whenever you think or believe or know, you're a lot of other people because you're you're sensing their ideas. You're just you're reiterating another person's thought or belief. Mimetic but the beings, moment, man. yeah. But the the moment you feel, you're nobody but yourself. And so, yes, take our ideas and try to understand them and comprehend them. But unless you translate that into you feeling, it does nobody any good. Mm. And so the symposiums, although they're highly emotionally charged and we make it that way on purpose. I mean, a lot of people think they're going to come here when we talk about how hardcore we hate humanity and how, <laughs> you know, how people are disappointing. All those things are true. But when we come here, what we've done is circled the wagons, right? We've. We are in harsh territory. We live in a culture where not a lot of people feel like they belong. They're not connecting to a lot of people. I live next to 20,000 people and I don't know any of my neighbors. Like I know none of them. I have to come down to a building 30 miles away to say hello to somebody who looks familiar. That is unprecedented in human civilization. So when I say circle the wagons, it's like uh, we're in an area that's hostile and we need to band together and talk about ideas and concepts and values that we can all get behind. And that takes getting down to the truth of it. Like, what is true? What does it mean for something to be true? All these ideas. Understand that there is no such thing as truth. There's just, you know, a fixed point somewhere that is changing. And this, this is where it gets really weird is we talk about strength, about holding 
Nothing is holding. There's no such thing as stillness. Stillness doesn't exist in the universe. It is all waving. It is all particles. Cells are always mutating and dying and creating. And life doesn't move. So you sh you should you know embody that. Keep moving, but embody all the things that get you to move in the direction that you want to go. So the symposiums talk about this esoteric stuff, and then when we get down to it, now let me show you how to feel this. And this is the this is my problem with like a remote coaching situation. Is like no, I, I might show somebody how to do a hollow or I can explain kind of how to do a wheel or an arch to wheel or, you know, all these weird body flow things that we've done as of late, uh, the crane dance or whatever. But until you're here in the room and you see me do it and you go, I see you do it and I go, no, 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 your spine is like this and your leg is like this and your knee isn't, you know, you're, you're, you're not activating and you're not active spine, active knee, active hip. And then you feel it and you contract so hard that you cramp up and you fall over. Now you know what it feels like so you can go practice properly. So the symposiums become a really important part, not only for the conversation to feel all the feels as it were, um, which sometimes can be jarring, but also to feel your body and what it is to actually do something correctly for the first time. How many people do you think that here, this is the team that was behind Jason Momoa and Henry Cavill and 300. This is the team that's behind that. And then someone hasn't done their due diligence and like, yeah, I'm going to go train with Michael Blevins. I'm going to go and get after it. And he's going to tell me about like whether push pull legs is actually better than a five day split. Um, and then they sit down and you just force feed them this red pill about reality over the course of 12 hours while Paul Warrior scowls from the back corner of the room. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I guess it could be shocking, but really, I, and we get this often, like, you know, what was Henry Cavill's um, training program? Like, how did he get so big and muscular and strong? And in, in all honesty, it's like, there was no program. There was a lot of conversations that happened every single day. Like we, we sat down and we did the same thing where I'll talk about a concept or idea. It'll elicit a response and then we'll get to training. And then we'll talk about that training after. Why was it hard? What was the conversation like? You know, why did why did you feel like you wanted to quit after ten minutes when we had thirty minutes to go? Like, what do you think you didn't sleep enough? Like, we just ask questions, and that that throws people off because people love definitive answers. And if you love definitive answers, you're not going to like me because I don't have any. <laughs> I do, if people I have got have this, far, if people have got this far in the podcast expecting definitive answers from you, Michael, I don't think that they've been listening. Right. Uh, so I think the answer is five by five bench on Monday. I Thank think that. You. Thank <laughs> you. There it is. An hour and twenty minutes in, and we finally got it. <laughs> but, but I mean, even in our strength program, when trying to like move people, uh, like I was really hesitant to put anything specific in there. Although we need to, people need to know what to do on Monday and Wednesday or whatever. <laughs> and so we broke it down into who are you? Like, try to ask questions like, where are you at? We have three categories: newbie, novice, and expert. That's not saying that newbie is easy and expert is advanced and you should do the super secret squirrel program. It shows that designation is different. An expert in powerlifting is going to do a powerlifting meet. Therefore, the structure for which he builds strength is hyper-specific. A newbie is learning strength and the destination is really specific. So you decide, kind of designate where you're at, and then you go down that path. You can always advance the path and become a novice and become an expert. That doesn't mean you're suddenly strong. It means that your destination has changed, and this is how we appropriate the destination. 
So explaining that to people as opposed to Henry did this workout and that workout, I did the 300 workout and then he squat five days a week or whatever it was. And that's how you do it. And then you eat chicken and broccoli. And they're like, cool, thanks. People would, people like that because people don't really like questions in general towards who they are as people. Mm. And then this is like, we write this in the beginning of the strength. It's really easy to say, hey, what's your squat? Oh, I squat 405. Cool. I think I know who you are as opposed to how do you overcome burdens? Like that, that question to most people will start bringing tears because they stop thinking about a fucking weight and they start thinking about how they dealt with their mom dying from cancer. They start dealing with the trauma of abuse when they were a child. How did you overcome that? It's like strength when it comes to the psychological is how do you hold your ideals? How do you hold who you are, your character as a person through the roughest of sort? When you're poor and you're eating ramen and you have no money and there's no exit, how do you not do the easy thing? How do you not go into prostitution? Not that anybody would hire me, but like, how do you not go into these traps? How do you not turn towards drugs that are escapism? Not the other kind of drugs, which are awesome, but there's these traps in life and we need to know how to be strong psychologically so we don't fall into them. And I think the more direct we are with our questioning as opposed to abstract, 405 is abstract. How do you, how do you overcome burden? That, that's a direct question. And the more you get a direct question, the more connection you have to human beings because now we're being honest with each other. Mm. Something that I've been thinking about throughout this conversation is the Tukamax Epochs of Life thing. And it's interesting to see with you guys as well. You kind of have um, these little cycles of this was us and then this was us and then this was us and now this is us and this is me. And then I'm thinking about what's next. And I'm going to try and make a, a prediction about what I think is is next for you guys. And it actually comes from Derek Sivers. You know who Derek Sivers is? Yeah, yeah. yeah so he's on he's on the podcast tomorrow. I have no idea how That's, the fuck. Same as you. He's he's probably second to you in terms of who's the most challenging to try and get on the fucking podcast. Um, <laughs> and um, he's got this really interesting thing, right? He talks about directives. So he's read hundred probably thousands of books. Uh, and what he did was he realized that a book, what most of a book is, is convincing you of the author's authority on this subject. Yeah, yeah. The vast majority of it is a combination of context, which is examples, and you should trust what I say. But mm. like Matthew Walker, Why We Sleep, it is mm. an entire book, an entire book that says sleep, out, sleep eight hours a night. But it's yeah. it's fucking 250, 300 pages long, right? That's what that's what it is, right? So you need I am an authority. You should trust me. This is why. Buy in, buy in, buy in, believe me, blah, blah, blah. Um but and Derek said this and he fucking red pilled me on it while I was researching him for this podcast. He said it on Tim Ferris. And um he says the bottom line is if you trust someone sufficiently, you trust the authority <laughs> figure, which is giving the instructions sufficiently. Mm -hmm. All you need is the directive. Yes. All that you need is the directive because you don't need the context. You don't mm -hmm. need the examples. You don't need the, the trust me, trust me thing. It's just mm -hmm. what do I do? So I, I think that within the next, I'd put a hundred quid on it. I wouldn't put much on it, but I'd put a hundred <laughs> quid. I'd put a hundred quid on the fact that you guys loop back around from being in a more super hardcore um mm -hmm. real kind of outward showing um uh, type of fitness which was still kind of anti-marketing and, and like kind of gorilla and, and, and mm -hmm. kind of against the grain into this more erudite 
kind of verbose, um, there is no form system. And I think that those two are then going to coalesce at some point in the future and that you're going to have a, um, not a minimum effective dose, but like the, the concentrated, the uranium 505 fucking version, you know, like the hyper dense neutron star shit. I think, I think that might happen. I genuinely think that your, your, your guys' progression may come full circle and you'll actually get back into, into directives in a very kind of pure and condensed way. It's possible. I mean, we've, we've removed ourselves from the movie industry because we didn't feel, we don't feel that repetition at that level was helpful anymore. And what it was taking away from was a creative process Mm -hmm. of like reinventing ourselves because in reality, you're just like the same, okay, you need to lose how much weight? How do you want to look shirtless? How do you like, what kind of food do you like to eat? What kind of exercise hurt you? Like it's the same questions over and over again. And so there's no personal evolution. We dropped it with a thought that we've mastered it. It's gone, whatever you want to marry. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it's not that we're close to the idea. It's that we turn them down because nothing has sunk in. But the second something piques our interest, we go there. And I, we're very like squirrel. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> there's no there's no plan here. We write down ideas, we have good conversations, and when something opens up, like, this sounds really ridiculous, but we're working on a tarot card game right now. Okay. Uh, it's, re- I'll explain it later when it's more well developed. In fact, maybe I'll, maybe I'll send you it when, once I print it off. But cool. the idea is that we should not be held back by anything um, that we've made a judgment about in the past. That's really hard to do. I've made a judgment about CrossFit. I've made a judgment about certain mm, competitions, about what it is. Industry. Exactly. Um, and I've made all these judgments. It, I shouldn't, I shouldn't do that. I should leave everything open to interpretation uh, and not go in like an idiot, like I've never been anywhere before, but to address something as, is this the same thing? Is this, re- am I recognizing the same human errors? In the end, people ruin everything, but I should appreciate that some people make it better. And I should be open to that fact that some people can make it better. That our symposiums have illuminated that to me, that there is like a spark and a hope to the people that come here for whatever reason. People heard me and Mark ranting on the internet, on a podcast, and somehow they flew and now they want to spend time with us. And they're some of the most genuinely beautiful people that I've ever met. They're, they're stories that they share reinform how we do and how we practice. And that, that's shocking. Um, I don't know. I don't know where it's going. So I also don't like to predict because I don't want to contain myself. Fine, but I've got, if my, it, I've got my hundred pounds on the line. Like I'm fine with that. I'll, cool. I'll, I'll let you bet as much as you want. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I like the space that we have. Like I've really, like I said it the other day, kind of over the internet, cause we had a conversation talk about developing the next endurance manual. And Ooh. we just had a mind blowing conversation about not endurance. Like, it was. Oh. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't surprise right? me at all. We were talking about the endurance manual. Didn't use the word endurance once. Well, I'll, and I'll share this story if you have time for it. Hit it. It's Hit kind it. Of a, so I, I'm, I, I frequently practice with ayahuasca. Like that's, that's a plant that speaks to me in a way that I, it helps creativity. There's all these other things that go along with it. But I have transformed myself using it. It has, a, it has taught me how to be somebody that I didn't think was possible. Um, but when using it, it is not all rainbows and trippy, 
you know, uh, passes through the constellations or whatever your experience is with it. Some of them are very hard and your intentions are really important. We've been trying to practice frequently um, as of recent because um, it's harder. <laughs> it's not, if you do it every once in a while, it's kind of like a Yahoo. And it's whatever, for whatever reason, it's communicated to the idea that I need to sit with it frequently to get good at understanding how things work. And so I've agreed to it. And although it's hard and I most of the time want to hit the eject button, mm. uh, last weekend, uh, I've been writing the endurance manual and I've been having a hard time with it. And Mark being Mark was like, are you going to, are you going to think about endurance this weekend when you sit? It's like, <laughs> Fuck you, Mark. <laughs> no, because that's just asking for suffering. Like if your intention is to learn about endurance, you're fucked. Like, you're going to hurt really bad. And I have to be really careful with what my intentions are when I sit mm. with the world's most powerful psychedelic drug. Mm. Because if I ask for learning, right? Like, oh, I want to learn something really specific. The best way that I learn is by burning my fucking hand. Mm. And that is not fun. So I also have to be careful with like, hey, this time I just want to enjoy myself. Well, guess what? I enjoy suffering. Like, <laughs> it, it, it can always go south. But this this time... I was like, no, I'm not going to think about endurance. I just, I'm not, I've been traveling Australia, competing. I'm exhausted. I haven't ever stopped for months and I have to go right into, we basically landed and went right into a ceremony. And so I was like, I'm jet lagged, all this other stuff comes up. So I'm just going to think about love or something because fuck, whatever, like hippie yeah. shit. And so I immediately took the first dose and, and you know, shit got bad really. Did, really did uh, Alex Hutchinson's face? just flow <laughs> not, not that bad in fact um it, Alex, it wasn't Alex, that if you're listening you've got a beautiful face i'm sorry about that one. he does i i wish it was that direct but the lessons in these kinds of experiences are so complex that you really have no idea what you're going to get and so i said love or something and there's this other process where you like you know uh make an offering of cedar and ceremony when you think about something and uh my wife's, uh, my mother-in-law, my wife's mom, she's been battling cancer for quite some time. And it looks like it's getting the better of her for the past couple months. Her breast cancer has turned into brain cancer and it's kind of enveloped her entire brain. She's losing a lot of function. So um, I thought about her and I was like, oh, cool, I'll go give an offering and I go up there and I come back and I bumped my chest. And I, I've had this like weird pain in my chest uh, for like a month. And I was like, God, that's for sure. Cancer. I'm for sure dying. I literally am going to die like in a couple weeks and no one gives a shit about me. I've done nothing to affect change in the world. Like I thought I would. And I'm just a miserable piece of shit. Fuck all these people. Like so much for the love intention. Here we go. Yeah. Yeah. And then I, and then I it dawned on me that this is what Aaron's mom's been going through for probably more than 10 years and how nobody is there for her and how I'm not there for her right now. And I was just like, sobbing for an hour just like thinking about what a miserable fucking son-in-law i am how like it's like it's a really hard lesson and then it dawned on me that i thought about how much i loved her and the reason why i will go over there is because love is feeling pain and doing it anyway and when i realized that i realized that endurance is love and that the more you feel love the more you can endure something and I was like, this fucking plant 
has the most visceral way of teaching you lessons that you don't want to learn about the world that you don't want to be in. And I came back and now like we had a conversation after that and that and it all stemmed around what emotional qualities are we looking for and what do they what do they elicit out of somebody? Like why why are you able to connect with people that do certain activities and don't do certain activities? I, and it's it's really informed like if people are afraid of psychedelics in my world, I almost am not interested in having conversations with them because that fear shows, and it doesn't mean you have to use them. It's this fear of change that I see. Are you afraid that you're going to be somebody different? And if you are, why are you afraid of change? Like, why do you not want to be somebody different? You've experienced you up until this point and it's gotten you to this point, but why would you want to shift that around to see what else you can learn or what else you can become? So it is, it's kind of wacky here some days. <laughs> Man, I like it. Like I say, the, the, the main, the thing that I keep on coming back to is posting out a podcast or posting out a symposium. This is the team behind the 300s movie and, you know, Henry Cavill. And then you get ayahuasca and, and, um, why the heat death of the universe is inevitable <laughs> and how really it's just entropy, man, and it's waves. And yeah, you're at the bottom of a squat, but really, really what I want to know is have you managed to strip away the ego? And it's like 400 pounds on your back. But look, I, I, I get the impression that we could go on for, I could keep doing this all night. Unfortunately, I've got to go run a club night, but, um, man, it, as soon as the endurance things, I mean, I've got a list. I'm just looking at my notes. I've got, all of the questions about fitness. This was a conversation not about fitness. That's what, that's what I'm going to title this podcast, a conversation not about fitness. Because I, 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 can, I can get behind that. Well, look, it's been really good. If, if there's anything else, maybe uh, I'll send you the endurance manual once we have it. You have the strength manual, right? No, not yet. Uh, I'll send you a copy of that too. Thank you. Uh, yeah, for sure. And then you can kind of see about it if um we're having a symposium we switched the uk one we're having a symposium in salt lake city i don't know what your schedule is like you're more than welcome to come out for it it's at the end of last weekend in may i think it's the 30th and 31st it's a special one because we um we have some friends at red bull and that morning before we start the symposium we actually buy ayahuasca, everybody ayahuasca retreat with red bull I wish. <laughs> I would tell the future. I don't think we can advertise that quite yet. Yeah. Um, but we actually run the Red Bull 400 beforehand, which is up in Park City, which is the uh, basically a competition to run up the ski jump. And oh, it is cool. terribly fun and also uh, transformative in its own way. So that one is a really special event. We do that every year. Where can um, people go? They, they want to come and fly out and see you or they're in Utah already. Where did they head to get? information on that uh our website is nonprofit with a ph so n-o-n-p-r-o-p-h-e-t dot media is the website we have all our stuff all our goodies all our books all our symposiums are up there listed um so and there's you know loads of articles i think we have like a hundred journal articles i've been i do these micro essays uh once a week for the past two years so there's quite a bit of writing up there for free um, that pe gives people an idea of what we're about. Helpful. This work at grit and teeth on Instagram. Yes, at grit and teeth uh, cool. on Instagram. Uh, don't find me there. I don't respond very often. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I have uh, sometimes I put pictures or whatever. So yeah, uh, find all those spots, and then 
uh, whenever you want to redo this, maybe you come out of Salt Lake, we'll have you on our podcast. <laughs> Man, that sounds awesome. Look, thank you so much, Michael. I appreciate that you don't often come on podcasts. And I'm really glad that I've managed to get you on this one. Um, thank you very much. Everything that we've spoken about will be linked in the show notes below. The Sam Harris thing, the Paul Bloom conversation, my chat with Aubrey Marcus, any stuff that Michael sends me over once we're finished. And of course, a link to nonprofit. And uh, despite the fact that he's desperately trying to hide away on social media, Michael's Instagram, um, I found you on Twitter as well. It's like some other oh, yeah. handle. I managed to I managed to track you down on Twitter as well. Sworn to black, yeah. Um, Sworn to black, yeah. It just sounds yeah, like I- all of your... All of your uh, social media handles sound like emo songs from the mid two thousands. Funny enough, "Sworn to Black" was a Black Dahlia murder song. Uh, yeah, super death death metal. I used to be super into it. Never changed it. Uh, I do use Twitter still. I really like Twitter. Got you. Well, I'll I'll put that in there as well. Look, Michael, man, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. It's been uh, it's been illuminating and interesting, and I uh, I genuinely wish that we could continue it. Hopefully, we will in the future. Awesome. Absolutely. Thank you, man.